Father, we, we thank you that you are the God of love. You're, that's what your word says, God is love, and it's, that's how we come to know what love is, by, by looking at you and seeing what you do. Your word tells us that you demonstrated your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, that is what love looks like, the love that, uh, that you have, the love that you have shared uh, among each person of the Trinity from eternity and the love that you have folded us into through your Son, through faith in him. Lord, it is a, a love that um, draws us to you when we are not worthy and a love that doesn't let us stay the same but changes us, that fills our hearts and, and helps us to begin loving others the way you have loved us. And Lord, we know that that's a process that begins when we first come to faith in your Son, and it's a process that won't be completed until we see him face to face. But Lord, uh, this morning as we come to your word, uh, teach us, Lord, shape us, make us what you want us to be, humble us, and and Lord, help us uh, to place our confidence fully in who you are and what your Son has accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Psalm 14 this morning, so you can turn there. Psalm 14. We're actually not starting here, but you can turn there and stick your finger there. We're actually going to begin in Romans 3. Because Psalm 14 and Romans 3 are connected together. To give you the context of Romans 3, Paul spends chapters 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3 proving that all men, both Jews and non-Jews, are all sinners. And they all fall short of the glory of God. And they are all worthy of the wrath of God. And at the end of that basically two-chapter argument, Paul, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, cites a host of Old Testament scriptures where he demonstrates that very thing, where he shows that he's not making this up. He's simply teaching what the Old Testament teaches. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes of Romans, Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verses 10 through 12 are a citation from Psalm 14. And as Paul quotes Psalm 14, he shows that this passage, together with those other Old, scripture, Old Testament scriptures, are pivotal in establishing the fact that 
we are sinners, as I said. He is declaring to us the bad news that we are all headed for a terrible experience of God's judgment. Now, that seems like a bit of a downer. Why does the Bible spend so much time telling us what dire straits we are in? Well, the Bible spends so much time declaring that to us and making that very clear to us because we will not come to have a proper understanding of what the good news is if we do not understand how bad the bad news is. We won't appreciate who Jesus is and what he came to do if I don't understand the spiritual sickness that has overtaken me. And that good news is what Paul turns to address from the rest of chapter 3 on through chapter 5. The good news that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people, that he bore the wrath of God for their sins in their place, and that he rose from the dead so that all who believe in him would be declared righteous, even though they're not righteous. But because of what Jesus did, his righteousness is credited to their account, and they receive forgiveness and eternal life. But Paul first tells them the bad news, and he quotes Psalm 14. Let's go back to Psalm 14, and I'll take the time to read that for us. Psalm 14, it's a psalm of David. And listen to what David says. Verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the portion that Paul quoted from in Romans 3. Verse 4, Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. In these first three verses, the verses that Paul quoted in Romans chapter 3, we discover that all men are fools. All men are fools. Look at verse 1. David says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. David's opening line in this psalm is a statement about the fool. Now, when we think of a fool, you know, the, the image comes to mind of the court jester with that funny hat with bells hanging off the end. You know, we think of somebody who's silly or stupid. But that's not typically what the word fool in Scripture means when the Bible uses it. And that's not what David means in this psalm. Here, the fool is one who is described as saying in his heart or to himself that there is no God. That's the message that he preaches to himself. There is no God. Now, we hear a lot of people who say things like that today, right? And what do we call them? We call them atheists, right? But atheism is not quite what David has in mind either at least not the intellectual 
atheism that we're familiar with today. No, this is more of a practical atheism. It's a living like there is no God. And my reason for saying that comes from observing a psalm that we actually went, went through, uh, I don't know how long ago now, but Psalm 10. Look over at Psalm 10. And verse 3, the psalmist says, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Right? Same thing that the fool of Psalm 14 says. There is no God. Here the fool is called what? He's called the greedy He's called the wicked, and he's preaching that same message to his heart, that there is no God. Now look at verses 5 through 13, continuing to describe this greedy, wicked person who says there is no God. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments, God, are on high, out of his sight, out of the wicked's sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, let me pause here, that phrase he says to himself, in the Hebrew it's the same phrase as Psalm 14.1, the, the fool says to his heart. That's the phrase, says to his heart, says to himself. This is what he preaches to himself. I will not be moved, verse 6. I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. Verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceit. And oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, or he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 12, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself or said to his heart, you will not require it. So you see in that, that 10th Psalm, verse 4, he says there is no God. And yet in verses 6, 11, and 13, he acknowledges that there is a God. But what is he denying? He's denying that this God who does exist will hold him accountable, right? That's what he's actually denying. So it's a practical atheism. There is a God out there, but he might as well not exist because he's not going to do anything about what I'm doing. I don't need to worry about it. Back in Psalm 14... Verse 1, this word for fool is the Hebrew word naval. Does that sound a little familiar? There's an Old Testament character who bears this name. Anybody know who I'm talking about? We pronounce it a little bit differently. Huh? Nabal, right? That's how we pronounce it in English, Nabal. That's this word, naval, fool. Let's go over to 1 Samuel 25 and just take a quick look at Nabal. Because he is the epitome of the fool. 1 Samuel 25, 
Here is where we encounter this wicked, wicked man named Nabal or Naval. And at this time in 1 Samuel 25, Saul is still king. Samuel the prophet has died. And David is living in the wilderness with his men. And the portion of the wilderness that David is living in happens to be in close proximity to where Naval's or Nabal's servants are shearing sheep. And David, as he dwells there with his men, they don't bother these servants of Nabal. In fact, they protect them. They treat them very well. And when David hears that it has come time for these servants to shear the sheep, David sends some men to talk to Nabal and say, hey, do you think you could have a little left over to give to me and my men, seeing as how we've treated them so well? And how does Nabal respond? Basically, in the rudest way possible, says, no, I'm not going to do that for you. Let's look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 25. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then we get some inside information in verse 3. Now the man's name was Naval, or Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. Now, this is an unlikely pairing, right, between Nabal and Abigail. They are polar opposites of each other. The woman was intelligent, or more literally, She was of good understanding and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now let's look at verse 17. So Nabal has rebuffed David, and David's not happy about that because what does he do? He gets his men together and he intends on killing Nabal and all of the men in Nabal's household. And thankfully, some of Nabal's servants catch wind that that's what David is planning. And so they they rush to Abigail to let her know about it. Verse 17, listen to what Nabal's servants say. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, Abigail. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So what is this epitome of a fool characterized as? He's worthless, and he cannot be reasoned with. So what does Abigail do? She hurries and gets some food together and rushes to intercept David before he slaughters her family. Look at verse 25. Listen to what Abigail says to David. She says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. In other words, he is aptly named. He is a fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So again, you see that the the difference between these two people. Nabal, he can't look past his own greed. He doesn't bother to consider how God has anointed David to be the king of Israel. But Abigail, on the other hand, she sees everything very clearly. She she acknowledges, as she talks with David, she acknowledges God's hand on David. 
She acknowledges that God has promised to make him king. And she actually serves David by saying, hey, if you go through with this, you're, you're basically going to forfeit everything that God has promised you. Trust in the Lord. His hand is upon you. God will take care of it. Then let's look at verses 36 to 38 at the end of, toward the end of the chapter. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. He's the epitome of the fool. If you read Psalm 14 and you, you read verse 1 and you want to know what the fool looks like, go to 1 Samuel 25. And you have to wonder if David was thinking of Nabal when he wrote this psalm. Now back in verse 1 of, of Psalm 14, David goes on to give three descriptions of what the fool is. Three descriptions of what the fool is. But notice, he doesn't say he is corrupt, he has committed evil deeds. What does he say? He uses a plural pronoun, right? He says they are corrupt. They commit abominable deeds. Which tells you what? It tells you that Abigail's husband, Nabal, was not one of a kind, right? He's, there's not just one Nabal out there. There's a lot of Nabals out there. The fool that David speaks of here is a whole class of people. And these people, David says, they are corrupt, or it could be said, they corrupt. And that word for corrupt, it means to ruin, to destroy. That's what they do. The fool corrupts. The fool destroys things. The fool ruins things. I want you to turn back to Genesis with me, where we see this word corrupt repeated Many times. Genesis 6. This is before God destroys the world with a flood. We're looking at verses 11 through 13. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt. There's that same word. Corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Same word. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now that word destroy, it's the same word as corrupt. So in other words, God is saying these people have corrupted their way upon the earth. They have destroyed their way upon the earth. So I am going to destroy them. So this charge in Psalm 14, where David says of the fool, they are corrupt, is that kind of a light indictment? No, that is extremely serious. He's saying of the fool that they are doing the very things that provoked God to wipe out the whole world with a flood. That's what the fool is characterized as. He corrupts, he ruins, he destroys. 
Now, David in verse 1 of Psalm 14 gives a second description. He says, They, those who are fools, have committed abominable deeds. They do things that are detestable in God's sight. Now, who are these terrible people? Surely this category of people can't be all that large. Surely there's only a few of those kinds of people. Well, look at the third description that David gives in verse 1. There is no one who does good. There is no one who does good. It's starting to look like that category of people is pretty big. No one does good. Is that really true? Can that really be true? Well, let's continue to find out. Verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, to see if there are any who seek after God. David describes God as looking down from heaven. That's an anthropomorphism, right? It's using human language to describe God because God, who is omniscient, he doesn't need to look down to, to observe anything, right? He, he knows everything all at once. He doesn't need to look over the, the edge of his, his throne in heaven to, to figure out what's going on. He already knows. But David, in describing God in this way, is drawing our, our attention to how intentional and thorough God's looking is. He's describing God as a king leaning over and craning his neck to see what's going on in his kingdom. And what is God looking for? What is he looking for? He's looking to see if there are any who understand. He's looking to see if there are any Abigails in the world. He's looking to see if there's anyone who seeks after God. In other words, he's looking to see if there's anyone who's not a fool, if there's anyone who has not corrupted his way on the earth. He's looking to see if there's anyone who does not do abominable deeds. And again, we expect surely he will find quite a few of those people, won't he? Not everybody's a fool. After all, we talk all the time about those who are seeking God. You know, the people who seem sincere, they seem open to spiritual things, but they've not yet repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. We describe them as, well, they're just they're seeking God. They're just looking. They're seeking. And we think, give them time, and eventually they'll figure things out. They'll get right with God. Surely they're not all fools. But what does God find? Verse 3, after he takes a good look, the omniscient God, verse 3, what does God find? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David gives three more descriptions here. They've turned aside from God and his ways. They've become corrupt. Third, they do not do what is good. And not only that, but David removes all doubt about just how many people are lumped into the fool category. Remember who God was examining in verse 2? He looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. Who's that? That's everybody. And David says that God has looked thoroughly and he has found that how many have turned aside? All have turned aside. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the world that David lived in, a world populated by fools. And it had nothing to do with IQ. Nabal wasn't an idiot. He ran a large operation, didn't he? It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with your rejection of God. Turn back with me to Genesis 6 again. I want to just meditate a little bit longer on this action of God, looking to see what's going on in his world that he made. And he made it good. He made it very good. Genesis 6, we're looking at verses 5 through 7 this time. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw. What did he see? He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And we read verse 12 that says, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Let's now go to Genesis 18. And we know what happened after God looked, right, and saw the earth corrupt. What did he do? He sent the flood. He destroyed the world, except for the one who found favor in his eyes, Noah. But let's look at Genesis 18. This is another instance where God looks to see what's going on. And this is, of course, talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were populated solely by evil, foolish people. Genesis 18, verse 20, the Lord is speaking to Abraham. He says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God takes a look. Chapter 19, verse 24. What does God do after taking a look and seeing the corruption in these cities? 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So when God looks and he sees corruption and he sees moral ruin and he sees spiritual destruction among mankind, what does he do? He destroys mankind. Now I want to ask you, is our world any different from the one in Noah's day? Is it any different from the one in Abraham's day? Is it any different from the one in David's day? No, it's the same world ruined by nations of fools. And what do we think God is going to do about that? Sooner or later, he is going to destroy mankind's corruption. And that's what the next three verses of Psalm 14 go on to say. The next three verses, verses 4 through 6, tell us that all fools will be judged. So we've seen that all men are fools, 
in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see that all fools will be judged. But the fool, being the fool that he is, does not seem to think so. Look at verse 4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? It's unclear whether God or David is talking here, but whichever one is speaking, he's speaking with a tone of shock or disbelief. He's saying, do they really not know? And, and not know what? Do they really not know that God has taken a look and sees all of the corruption that is there? Do they really not know that he's done that? Do they really not know that God is going to do something about it? And the answer to the question is, apparently not, because what are they busy doing? According to verse 4, they are busy eating up God's people as someone eats bread. The fool, the wicked person, sees God's people as objects to be used and abused. How do you eat bread? You eat it without a second thought, right? Without a moment's unease, unless you're on some kind of diet. It's bread. It's there to be eaten. That's what it's there for. And that's how the world treats the people of God. Nations like North Korea and China, they see God's people as rats to be exterminated or as wastes of space and resources fit only to be enslaved or controlled. Nations like ours see God's people as cavemen to be mocked or votes to be manipulated. These fools, they eat up God's people as they eat bread. And despite the fact that God sees all that they are doing, and that despite the fact that he will surely do something about it, what do these fools refuse to do? They do not what? They do not call upon the Lord. When you are corrupt, and when you are in a, a doer of abominable deeds, and when you come to know that God has seen all of it, and when you come to know that he will certainly judge you, what is the appropriate response to that? You call on the Lord for mercy, right? Turn with me to Jonah. So you'll, you'll hit Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. You'll go past Amos and Obadiah, and then you'll hit Jonah. And if you get to Micah, you went too far. Jonah chapter 3. He's talking about the prophet Jonah being sent to a wicked people, a foolish people, the Ninevites, right? They were Assyrians. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's making known to them that they are evildoers, and God is about to do something about it. In fact, in forty days, he is going to overthrow your whole city. Verse 5, what did the people do? How did they respond? Did they respond like fools? 
No. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men do what? Call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And then what did God do? Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites, they turned from their folly. They called on the Lord when they saw judgment hanging over their heads. But that is not what the fool does in Psalm 14. They don't do that. They don't call upon the Lord. They are dumb to the threat of God's judgment. They're living like the sword will never swing down upon their heads when God is, in fact, in mid-swing. Now let's go over to 2 Peter. Things have not changed. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at verses 3 through 7. Here we see these, these fools in Peter's day. 2 Peter 3. Listen to what Peter says in verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues, just as it was from the beginning of creation. They're like the fool of Psalm 14. They're like the wicked and greedy of Psalm 10. This is the message they preach to themselves. Look at the world just doing what it wants, and God isn't doing a thing about it, and God won't do anything about it. I'm okay. I can keep doing what I want to do. I can keep living for myself. God's not going to do anything about it because he hasn't been doing anything about it for millennia. But what does Peter say? Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice but that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He's saying that these fools don't take into account that God destroyed the world once before, and he's promising to do it again. We see there that just like there were fools in David's day, there were fools in Peter's day. And there are still fools in our day, who think that God is not going to do anything about their foolishness. But they're not taking into account that God has brought men to account in the past, and the God who cannot lie promises that he will do it again. Back in Psalm 14, when we come to verse 5, 
It seems a little bit paradoxical to what we've seen in this psalm so far. In verse 5, David says, There they are, the wicked, the fools, there they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. But up until this point, it doesn't seem like the fool has been in great dread, right? So how can David say the fool is in great dread when it has been clear he's not up to this point? Well, there are a couple possible ways to take this verse, and I'm not sure which way is right, but I know that both options are supported by other scriptures, so you can't go too wrong if you adopt one interpretation over the other. But one way to take this statement by David in verse 5 is to read him as making a prophetic statement. He's saying what will be true for the fool. The fool is at ease now, convincing himself that God's not going to do anything about it. But the day is fast approaching when they will be forced to wake up from their delusion to the terrifying reality that God has been actively taking notice and he will bring a reckoning to them. He will judge them. And when that happens, there will be a dread that will come upon the fool unlike anything he's ever known before. That's one way to take this verse. Another way to take this verse is to see David as saying that despite the fool's willful ignorance of the coming judgment, there is still a nagging dread inside of him. He knows deep down that what he's doing is wrong and he will be punished. The fool is not able to drown that little voice out completely. We see this in, in Romans 1, don't we? Verses 18 to 32, where Paul tells us that unbelievers know that there is a God. They know there's somebody that they're accountable to. And how do they know it? Because all of creation <clears throat> bears witness to that fact. When you go to Romans 2, Paul tells us that not only is creation a witness to unbelievers, but the conscience is as well. Their own conscience accuses them when they do something that's wrong. And Romans 1 tells us that, that the unbeliever, the fool, tries to suppress that testimony, tries to shove it way down so that he can't even hear it anymore, can't hear creation telling him there's a God, can't even hear his own conscience telling him what, he, what he's doing is wrong anymore. And he surrounds himself with other people and they, they, who tell him the same things and they slap each other on the back and say, there's no God. If there is a God, he won't do anything about it. Let's just keep going. We're having a good time. We don't need to worry. But then believers in Christ, like you and me, come along every once in a while. And we rub shoulders with them. And we do something or we say something that amplifies that testimony that they've been trying to shove way down back into the corner. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 to you, <clears throat> which talks about this effect, this disturbing effect that believers have on the fool. 2 Corinthians 2, Verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who always leads us, believers, in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we, believers, are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. How do we smell to those who are being saved? How do we smell to those who are perishing? Paul tells us in verse 16, to the one, we are an aroma from death to death. That's how we smell to the unbeliever. To the other, an aroma from life to life. That's how we smell to other believers. Despite the fool's oppression of God's people, God's people scare the living daylights out of the fool because we remind them that that voice they've tried to drown out, that creation is telling them, that their own conscience is telling them, that it's true and the day of judgment is coming. We are a painful reminder to fools that God is with us and he is against them as long as they persist in their rebellion. Verse 6, back in Psalm 14, David says, he, he addresses the fool directly here. He says, you, the fool, the wicked, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. The fool often, because God's afflicted people are a painful reminder to him, the fool will often try to embarrass God's people. As we call them to repent and we, we lovingly point them to Jesus Christ, we urge them to believe in the one true God, they laugh at us. They try to make us out to be idiots. They try to discredit us. They say, you're the fool, not me. But eventually, the counsel of God's afflicted people will win out because God himself is our refuge. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying it to try to be a jerk. I'm just using the words that David is using. There may be some fools in the room today who have not yet acknowledged their sin before God, and they have not yet run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation from their sins and from the wrath of God. If that is you, if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you might be sitting here thinking, but I'm not corrupt. I haven't committed abominable deeds. I do good things all the time. I don't know what David's saying, but he's out to lunch. I do good things all the time. I seek God. I'm sitting in this room, aren't I? This psalm isn't talking about me. But when you say you do good all the time, you only come to that conclusion because you're comparing yourself to Hitler. You're comparing yourself to Osama bin Laden. You're comparing yourself to murderers and thieves and to guys who cheat on their wives and so on, and you think you come out looking pretty good. But you need to understand that God is not going to judge you based on how you compare to a Hitler. God is going to judge you based on his holy law. He's going to judge you based on how you compare to him, how you compare to Jesus Christ. And if God sees anything whatsoever in your life that comes short of his holiness, that comes short of his righteousness, that comes short of his love, that comes short of his faithfulness to God, that looks criminal. It looks vile. It looks detestable to him. Because every falling short of what God says we should do is a brazen affront to his authority over our lives. 
And all your good deeds that you do are nothing but a pile of filthy rags to God because you do, that, you do not do them for his glory. All your good deeds, they're still godless deeds. And God is going to judge you. And God will destroy you unless you repent. And like the Ninevites, you call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. So Psalm 14 implicitly is crying out to you to stop being a fool and fear the Lord, which is the beginning of true wisdom. And those of us who are sitting around you who are believers in Jesus Christ, we were just as big of a fool as you are. We too were corrupt. We did abominable things. We too had turned aside from God and were not seeking God. We had no thought for God. We were preaching the same message to ourselves. There's no God. And even if there is, he's not going to really care that I do these little things. What is that to him? But then God did something to our hearts. He convicted us of our sin. He opened our blind eyes to see our need for Jesus Christ. And we came to believe that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people and that he rose from the dead. And by faith, we came to Jesus and we asked him to save us, and he did save us. Through his word, he made us wise unto salvation. And he'll do the same for you if you come to him. Verse 5 of this psalm says, God is with the righteous generation. Well, how is there anybody in the righteous generation if everybody is fools? The only way you, you get in the righteous generation is if God mercifully opens your eyes to who you are and he he leads you to Christ and you believe in Christ. And the moment you believe in Christ, God takes you out of the wicked generation and he puts you in the righteous generation. And he is with you. He's for you forever. So run to Christ because all fools will be judged. But thankfully, verse 7, all God's people will be saved. All God's people will be saved. As one of God's people living in a world dominated by fools, David cries out to God at the end of this psalm. Verse 7, he says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. David here expresses his earnest desire that the salvation of his people would come, would be given from Zion. What's Zion? Well, it's just another name for Jerusalem. It was the mount upon which the temple of God would be built. It was the place where God was pleased to have his name dwell forever. Zion was the capital of Israel. It will be the capital of the whole world when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on earth. In Psalm 2, verse 6, God speaks of having installed his king, the Messiah, on his holy mountain. Mount Zion. In Psalm 9, verse 11, David describes Yahweh as the one who dwells in Zion. So when David says, oh, that salvation would come from Zion, who's the only one who's living there who can actually accomplish that? It's God. It's Christ himself. And that Hebrew word for salvation that David is crying out for, it's it's the Hebrew word Yeshua. And what name do we get from that? 
Jesus, right? The salvation that David cries out for is ultimately a person. And for David, there's no doubt about whether or not his prayer would be answered. Because what does he say in verse 7? Does he say, if the Lord restores his people? No, he says, when. When the Lord restores his people. And we know that ultimately, Jesus is the answer to David's prayer. Because Jesus, what did he do on the cross? He purchased the salvation of his people. And that that salvation that he purchased on the cross, it included forgiveness of sins, it included eternal life, but it also included salvation from a world ruled by fools. Jesus has purchased for his people a kingdom in which he will rule forever and ever. He who is wisdom incarnate. And when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, there will be no place for fools to live there. So if you and I desire to be a part of his kingdom and to live under his just, righteous, gracious, and wise rule, we must abandon our foolishness. We must stop turning aside from God, and we should instead turn aside from our abominable ways, our lies, our lusts, our hatred, our selfishness, our pride, and we must embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And the moment we do that, the moment we trust in him to be our all in all, he becomes to us wisdom from God. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31? But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God will judge all fools, but when you by faith hide yourself in the wise Savior, God forgives you, he declares you to be righteous, and he gives you his kingdom for the sake of his Son. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we came into this world as fools, and we loved our folly, And we preached that message to ourselves all the time that there is no God and even if there is one, he doesn't really care about me living life for me. But Lord, we we praise you that you woke us up from our our dangerous slumber, Lord. You you terrified us with your your threats and then you, you wooed us by your love and you comforted our hearts by your grace by showing us Jesus and the salvation that is available freely to us in him and you granted us faith to believe and you rescued us you saved us and you you clothed us in the righteousness and the wisdom of your son you made us acceptable to you in him and ever since that day you have been growing us in wisdom helping us to turn more and more away from our folly and lord we pray for any who may be here who are still fools maybe with an IQ of 180, but still a fool because they are rejecting you. Lord, may you make them wise unto salvation and draw them to yourself. Help them to trust in Jesus. Even today, we pray in his name. Amen.